1: This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap.
0: Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm John. One of the things I bang on about quite a lot of city metric is local government which you know i find local government really interesting because there's all these maps and boundaries and you can talk about housing policy and transport and so on and you know it's but, but i, I I've, I've long ago woken up to the fact that you know most normal boys aren't interested in this stuff but it's not quite just me so i've i've invited a guest on to talk about some of these issues because i think they're very they're very live at the moment for for reasons i i suspect we may come on to so do you want to tell us who you are and what you do?
1: Uh, so my name's Emma Burnell and I'm a political journalist and communications consultant and I've worked in local government think tanks for three or four years over the last few years and also in housing, so I have a strong interest in the way that local government is run and managed and houses people.
0: You're being very shy about this, but you also have your own podcast, don't
1: you? I do, yes. Uh, well, I have a podcast that will be starting soon, uh, yeah. which is on the um, where politics meets pop culture with uh, Professor Steve Fielding from uh, Nottingham University.
0: Oh, cool. Well, that's something to look forward to. It'll be called
1: the Zeitgeist Tapes, we think, unless someone comes up with a better name. <laughs> so please uh, do tweet me. I'm Emma Burnell underscore.
0: So we decided we would have a little conversation about, let's call it the strange death of municipal England. And the fact that, you know, my, my, my feeling is that if you go around any of the, particularly the great northern cities, they are absolutely full of buildings, not built just by local philanthropists, but also by the golden age of municipal government you've got like joseph chamberlain in birmingham uh i'm not going to be able to remember any other names but you know you have there are equivalents in all the big cities like manchester and bradford and so on and it doesn't feel like we, we we have that anymore and despite my excitement about the rise of the metro mayor i'm not sure that's coming back anytime soon
1: it could do. Um, the metro mayors certainly are a way back into having that kind of powerful voice for localities, um, which is what originally local government really was. If you look at some of the um, some of the town halls uh, around the country, which uh, it's been my real pleasure to do over the last few years, they are absolute cathedrals to local government, to municipality, to, to local power, doing things for local people. Were they always great? No. I mean, I think we all know the stories of of places that there have been corruption or places where politics has got in the way. But on the whole, what you've had is local infrastructure built by local people who understand the needs of the locality at the time. Since the decline of industry, those needs have changed a lot. But at the same time, um, municipal government was being sidelined at best.
0: Let's 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 go right back with the history like when does this what I've called at the golden age of municipal government when does that really start and why
1: Well it's really the victorian's I guess um I mean you've already mentioned Joseph Chamberlain he's the, the really obvious case but a lot of it rose up with the industrial revolution where you needed a lot of things done to build infrastructure very quickly so sort of canals and big roads and things all of this was done by local places realizing, like Manchester, Liverpool, that they could become really, really big, rich places very quickly if they had the right infrastructure in place. So uh, it was, it was, it was, it was capitalism, but it was, it was capitalism that invested in place.
0: Yeah, so sort the of community yeah. capitalism, as it were. Um, but yeah, no. One of the things that I find very striking, looking back at that period, is that in that late nineteenth, early twentieth century period, like. Every city would not only have, you know, a tram or, or you know, a know trolleybus network that would be run by the municipal government. It would also have its own like power stations and power supplies.
1: Yeah. Uh, water was run um, locally. I mean, all sorts of things that we now just. I mean, when the Labour manifesto is told, you can't. Nationalise that. Actually, previously it wasn't nationalised, but it was definitely run by the local state.
0: So, so basically, you get nationalisation, then you get privatisation. That's the kind of way it happens, right? It's like originally, so much of this infrastructure is done on a sort of municipal yeah. place basis. So, and what... I mean
1: that's true of a lot of the things that the state used to provide as well. I mean, if you look at um, how the welfare state, um, the forty-five welfare state, developed, a lot of that um, was bringing in new things. Wonderful new things like the NHS that we all love, but actually an awful lot was actually bringing stuff up from things that were provided locally, and giving it sort of national standard.
0: And the the sort of the the, the left wing, the socialist argument for that was presumably you know redistribution. It was making sure there was a baseline standard for everyone. It was basically removing what we'd now that nowadays depressingly call a postcode lottery, right? It was about making sure that a patchwork of services was in fact a kind of national system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and that's abs- um, that's sort of the vital role that central government plays in these services, is making sure that they hit a baseline. Um, that, yeah, as you say, the postcode lottery, which has never really gone away, let's be honest, um, but that that you have a, a, a be- decent basic standard of services wherever you are, whoever your local council is whoever your local MP is.
0: So, I'm trying to think how to put this delicately. Is the gradual disintegration of municipality in Britain really the fault of the Labour Party? Is that what (laughs) we're saying
1: here? Um, No, (laughs) but yes and no. The Labour Party were, certainly the 45 government, were centralists. Um, and there was a lot right with that. The way the country was at that time, it was very important that uh, that those services, particularly post-war period, were given and done quickly in a way that sometimes only central government can do. Um, and it's
0: probably also worth noting that there was like this sort of infrastructure to roll things yeah. out centrally in 1945 in a way that hadn't been before because of the war effort right
1: yeah exactly so what you had was a massive central infrastructure from led from whitehall that had been working in the country's good for the last 5 years some of that had taken powers up from local government some of it was new, new newly created because of the war so it was it was a the right response to a national crisis and to a national mood that we needed to have a country fit for the people who were coming home from from the fighting the war um, and so we had that settlement, which centralised a lot of services, and uh, nationalised some services, but we're still running them through the state from then until Thatcher.
0: I mean, there, there are some major things that happen with local government between those two, like, like the big reorganisation is like 1974, right? Which, I mean, which isn't really relevant to the conversation we're having. I'm just saying there's maps. I really like the <laughs> maps. I'm particularly excited about the maps. Also, we're going to, I'm going to avoid Redcliffe Moors just because that will just get too complicated. But we might talk about Redcliffe Moors in another episode. But, you know. Fair
1: enough. Um, well, yes, there was a lot of reorganising how local government looked. There wasn't an awful lot of change in what local government did.
0: So, okay, bring it. Take take the story forward a bit. Like in in the the golden age of the Victorian era, like local government did basically everything. It was the main provider of services. In that kind of mid twentieth century period, like after but before thatcher what 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 is local government doing then what does it look like
1: well it's building housing that's one of the key things that it does it builds lots and lots and lots of places for people to live and central government has very sensibly said we don't know where you should be doing this we don't um but we think you should be doing this and make sure that local government has the tools and the money to build 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 um and sometimes it does that really well and sometimes it does that less well and some of the um Sometimes it did that in some very ideologically interesting ways. um, (laughs) Ways that we wouldn't... So there were whole sort of concepts quite often from the left of building new shining cities for the poor that very quickly of course turned into ghettos because they weren't accessible from anywhere else they were hived off away from everywhere else now nowadays you would think that that was a right-wing concept that sort of ghettoization you live here we live here but actually a lot of the time that was actually done with some very left-wing ideology behind it in this sort of you know, we will build you these brand new cities um, that only worked better when we actually built whole new towns with new infrastructure, and that was generally done in a sort of combination of local government and private sector investment. There's, and that came later on.
0: There's this concept uh, of permeability, which I keep meaning to write about, but like one of the problems with a lot of the, the sort the of mid 20th century council states is they are places that you would not just see as part of the streetscape. Mm-hmm. Like you would, you. I, I think we all probably do it, even those of us who live on, on the stage, you kind of instinctively walk around an estate rather than through it. Because it feels like a separate, it feels somehow private almost. It, it's not just that like you're thinking if I go through there, it, there might be some people I don't want to meet. It's literally like it just feels like it's not public space. And that has a knock-on effect on, on how people perceive mm. where they live and on, on, on also just on quality of things like street life. Yeah. So like,
1: yeah, I mean, then often they were designed exactly that way, um, which probably, again, had that sort of uh, well-meaning thought, thought behind it. You know, this is your space, you don't want everyone tramping through it. But actually, again, it does hive I mean, I'm thinking of the first place that I lived when I left home was on a council estate. And it was this huge, huge estate in Stamford Hill. But it didn't go anywhere. There was only one really main entrance mm. from Stamford Hill. But when you think about all, as far back as it reached, you could have walked right through, way to over to Clapton, all of that sort of area, but there were no really through routes. So, of course, nobody did that. So, again, as you say, the only people who went through that entrance were the people who lived on the estate.
0: Yeah, and it just becomes sort of closed off. Yeah. But, no, I do find this idea that these, these places were often built out of idealism. I find that very interesting because... Um, Last, last year when I was on a beach holiday, because I know how to live when I'm on holiday, I read uh, Professor Tony Travers' history of the London boroughs at 50, and basically just talking about everything that the, the, the 32 London boroughs had, had done in their early years. And I was really taken aback by quite how much of it was about housing. Mm. And and also, it was if you were a radical young architect who wanted to change the world through changing built environment in the 1960s you would go and work for a council housing department and that just seems like an absolutely crazy thing these days, Well, right? absolutely,
1: yeah. and and that's that's absolutely what happened in the post-79 settlement. Once we decided that um, we were going to cut back the state, the state was the problem, um, and that meant the state at every level. And so we all remember the sort of really pitched battles between um, certain councils, particularly Liverpool, um, the GLC in London and the Thatcherite government, and they were they were ideological clashes on both sides. And it was it was partly that the councils were having a lot of their powers stripped and removed, and a lot of their funding stripped and removed. But it was also that both sides were saying, it, but from the left they were saying, we think this active state is right and important, and it helps people, and that's what we're here for. And the Thatcher government was saying that too much state is a nanny state, it's uh, coddling people, people would be much better if they go off and make things on their own, uh, if they own their own homes rather than live in homes that are rented from the council. It, you know They didn't like that dependency as they saw it on the council.
0: So basically the idea of the municipal state is under attack from both sides, because the left believe in centralisation and the right believe in cuts, is basically what we're saying. That's right.
1: where we got to in the 80s, yeah. And then... Once you got, get into the new Labour years, it's slightly different in that Labour tried to do different things with councils, but they, they, New Labour was so scarred by the 80s that their entire vision of councils was Ken Livingstone and Derek Hatton, basically. And um, so, But actually you had you know, sort of interesting councils doing interesting things. The new Labour approach to, to local government was to use them to find need and then to address that need. Um, And it was quite a good way for them to be slightly hands-off in the way that they addressed need, uh, but also to ensure that they were doing good by stealth, which was essentially the new Labour slogan. Um, So a lot of it was happening, but it wasn't happening through central legislation, it was happening through through, uh, local government work.
0: I think it's worth saying that a lot of the things that left-wing councils were accused of doing in the 80s, well, some of them were just made up, but a lot of the things that were seen as crazy at the time were things that now look completely and utterly mainstream. Even Gay like, rights, for example. Yeah. Or, or talking about, hey, maybe maybe having black people living around here isn't a bad thing. Yeah. You know, it was that kind of stuff. But they were just kind of ahead of the curve, right? They
1: were. I mean, where they were um, slightly bonkers was in terms of um, funding formula and, you know, actively breaking the law in order to challenge the government uh, and while and sometimes that was extremely courageous and important, what it ended up with was putting massive massive strictures on local government that local government have been suffering under ever since so it 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 was an, they took their freedoms that they had and they took them really really to the extreme and then all of the freedoms were taken away.
0: The the other thing I think it's worth saying about that kind of period is there was corruption. Yeah. Like, have you ever? There's a danger. I'll just disappear down this black hole now. But have you ever seen Our Friends in the North?
1: Of course, I've seen Our Friends in the North. It's
0: amazing. (laughs) If anyone listening hasn't seen it, it's my favourite TV drama of all time. It's just about it's the history of the British political left from the mid '60s to the mid '90s. But it's an amazing piece of work. But there's a huge amount of stuff in that about corruption around. The construction of so much of that that kind of post war housing, yeah. where it's done on the cheap because of backhanders, and so on. You know. And also, like, I mean, you mentioned Derek Hatton. There were some very interesting spending decisions going on in in his Liverpool, right? So, yeah,
1: absolutely. There, I mean, there, there was corruption. There was cronyism. There was, the, I mean, the as I say, the, the abuses of freedoms probably happened both in ideological, but also just monetary terms. People mm. were, you know, were not properly. There was not proper oversight. And when there's not proper oversight, things go badly wrong because human beings are a bit dodgy sometimes. Yeah.
0: And as is always the way with the the British state, the instinct is not, hey, how do we regulate this better? It's like, just give us all the power or scrap the regulation. It's like there's never any that kind of middle ground of like maybe we just need to tinker a bit doesn't really happen.
1: Yeah. And, And because it became such an ideological battle, you had to have a real winner and a real loser. And Thatcher won and local government lost. And then when New Labour took over, they didn't see local government as the cause they wanted to fight for. So they didn't. And again, as part of their proving that they weren't ideologically driven, they bought a lot of the sort of um, encroaching privatisation of the local state as much as of the national state.
0: So there is, I think there's an sort of interesting psychological difference of how local government was treated under the new Labour years, which really continues to this day, which is instead of being a part of government that you know has, is, has its own election and therefore its own mandate, it is seen as, the election state of course, but it's seen as kind of almost a sort of service delivery body yeah. for national government. So, so councils stop being able to build their own infrastructure to a large extent. They just have to do what the national government wants them to do. And sometimes the national government is kind enough to give them a few quid to to build some kind of little local project. But it's still fundamentally seen as an arm of, of the the state at Westminster rather than its own entity, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that is what drives people, particularly the more innovative people in local government, absolutely mad, is, is the direction the, and the amount of direction, the heaviness of direction from Whitehall... Um, You know, they are, Whitehall is inflexible, and it's not very good at talking to itself, never mind the hundreds of councils uh, of Mm. different sizes and shapes around the country.
0: And I also think that it, I mean, maybe you you know far more about local government than I do, but my sense has always been this kind of neutering of it has a knock-on effect on who will go work in local government.
1: Absolutely. And the
0: quality of staff you can get, to be blunt about it.
1: There are... They used to, the deal used to basically be, in very, very blunt basic terms, and it's not quite this clear cut, but for the, for the purposes of the podcast, that you would go and work in local government if you wanted to have a steady wage and a great pension. Mm-hmm. Your deal would be, I will earn less than I would get in the private sector, but I won't be taken care of in my old age. Uh, and I will also be given a certain amount of freedom to do interesting things, like your young, dreamy architects. Um, now, the young, dreamy architect bit went fell away. Um, and as the cuts have got further and further and further in, the, so has the pensions. We don't have the, the so-called gold-plated pensions anymore. Um, and so have the wages. And so has the stability. The other deal was you're not going to lose your job unless you're really crap and um, so you know you've you've got a sense of stability you know where you're like if you're the kind of person who wants to be in the same job in 10 years as you're in now then local government was a good place to go and work to actually really sort of get invested in a place really actually have long-term commitment to a place a lot of that's fallen away a lot of um, what local government can do now is almost entirely dictated by what it can afford to do and what the government makes it do. So the statutory services that local government has to provide, um, which is largely adult social care and children's social care, they've just eaten... The budget for almost anything else which means of course that what you've got a lot less of in local government now is the real expertise level that we used to have so you've got some really interesting people in in managing local government you've got some really interesting counsellors who really want to do things with an interesting leadership what you haven't got is that level of experts um, people who really know how to do procurement well uh, procurement is a thing I get on my high hobby horse about and people just look at me like I'm mad because who cares about procurement, right?
0: It means buying stuff, if you don't know. Sorry.
1: <laughs> it does. It means buying stuff well. Mm. And if you look at most local government procurement contracts, and um, they are huge, complicated documents. You have to go through a tendering process if you're buying more than about five pencils. Um And there are... The imbalance of expertise between the people you're likely to be buying from, i.e. in the private sector who have lots and lots of money and know how to sell things really well and have a lot of legal expertise to get themselves the best contract, and the expertise that you're likely to have in a council is hugely imbalanced, and of course that means that you can't necessarily buy the best product understand what it is you're buying, understand the terms of the conditions that your contract is tying you into. This is where a lot of the things have fallen down with PFI. PFI in itself is not a terrible system, it's just terrible, terrible contracts.
0: I I used to write about PFI, I could talk about that for quite a long time, but I'm I'm not (laughs) going to do that, don't worry about that. Something we haven't really, I mean we've kind of been talking around it, but we should probably use the word austerity and talk Mm -hmm. about the fact that even by the standards of the cuts of the last Seven years, local government budgets have really been gutted. I mean, they haven't just, like so much of the public services, what's actually happened is they've kind of, money hasn't increased, but costs have. What's happened in local government is they've literally taken half the money
1: away. Yeah. Uh, Whilst also having a massive, massive demographic shift towards older people who need social care, which is provided for by local government.
0: Yeah. Which is how you end up in a system where, you know, there's all these scandals about people, about the poor quality of social care. But it's because we're paying often people who don't speak English for about yeah. 11 grand a year to look after the elderly. And it's like, well, I just kind of think, what do you expect to happen yeah. if you're not going to put proper money into that system?
1: And, I mean, Eric Pickles was quite open about this at Conservative Party conference when they first came into power. He said, we're, we're devolving the axe. Mm. And, you know, they devolved the blame to the councils who are in some cases not doing very well, in some cases doing the best that they absolutely can. And, um, you know, councils, There, are you know, we're talking about 300 odd, or 250 odd or, um, organisations across the country. Of course, you're going to get variance of quality in that. But what has happened to all of them is that they just can't do the things either that they want to do or that they used to do. Uh, and that's partly because they have so many things that they're told they have to do legally, and once you've done all that, there's just literally nothing else, nothing left in the tank for innovation, for trying to do things a bit differently, for trying to work out how to do these things better.
0: So that's that's where we are. I'm going to mention the dreaded word Grenfell. Where does that fit into this story?
1: Well, we don't know exactly yet. Um, I mean, I have some thoughts. Again, comes back to some of the procurement stuff. Um, you know, the... The cladding was the wrong type of cladding. I think that we can all pretty much accept yes.
0: that. Oh, sorry, I should clarify for any international listeners that this is the West London Tower block fire in which at least 80 people have died, very possibly a lot more. We don't, we're not going to know for some time, which is quite horrifying in itself. Mm. But yes, the, the cladding was a, ch- a slightly cheaper variant.
1: A slightly cheaper variant which was flammable rather than inflammable. Um, I, I always get flammable and inflammable mean the same thing, don't they? But uh, it... it Basically, it, it went up and yes. it shouldn't have done. Um, so again, that probably boils down to the contract that was written up, uh, the tender that was put out.
0: The thing I, I read a, a piece of this for for the New Statesman, our parent magazine, a few weeks ago, and the thing that I found very shocking is. It's very easy to slip into this narrative of like, oh, austerity, it's the cuts Mm. and so on. But the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea is Mm. probably the richest local authority. It's sat on, you know, it's a very, very rich part of London. It's the richest part of the richest city. And that council was sat on reserves worth £270 I think was the figure. But it just wasn't spending on on ensuring that the homes it provides were safe.
1: No, I think what's and again i don't want to preempt anything um, so i am i am speculating but from a sense of where i think that local government is if that had happened in another borough in london i think austerity itself would be the answer you know you have carter our money mm. i think with kensington and chelsea because they have been a conservative council for a very long time forever
0: literally forever yeah. um, since it was created in yeah.
1: 1964 65 sorry they have adopted internal austerity. They want a small state. That is their ideology. So they've cut themselves back in terms of what they do as an organisation. Having done that, and it's not just like... I mean, some of the Tory councils have this thing called Easy Council, which is where they basically cut everything off and, and outsource everything.
0: It's a reference to EasyJet. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, and this isn't quite that, because as I said, they have, they're not say, doing it to save money. They're doing it because they think that's the right thing to do. And the problem when the state recedes is that for a long time we don't notice until we really, really do. And I think that's what this moment is, is that we've noticed that the state has now receded from our lives to a point where it's endangering us.
0: I've talked a lot about metro mares on this podcast, largely because, well, to be honest, it was largely because I sort of suspected nobody else was going to do that. So there was a gap in the market for for, for, <laughs> for something like us. Um,
1: do you have the same problem I have that every time you say the word Metro you want to sing it to the tune of Macho Man?
0: Yeah, in fact, um, on the on much earlier edition of this podcast, I in fact made Stephen Bush do just that.
1: <laughs> Excellent.
0: But so, so that's that's in the archive. If you want to, you want to search it out. Um, can they change any of this? I mean, obviously they can't. They're not going to bring back those that's fifty million quid. But so psychologically, do you think? having, like, the, the London mayoralty is effectively kind of a pilot metro mayor that we've had for 17 years now, right? And my instinct is that kind of has changed mm. something about how we perceive the city and how, how the, the different boroughs relate to each other. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of asking and then answering my own question, but how do you feel about this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm very much in favour of the metro mayors. I think it's a great thing. I I have my own partisan um, positions on who should have won what where. Um one.
0: Are you also still cut up about Sue Jeffrey?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, me <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah. yeah, I, I mean, I did slightly see that one coming, um, but I didn't believe it until the moment it happened. Mm. But I think that having these big, big voices for localities that don't have necessarily, I mean, they, they, they cut a, They have to cut a deal with government. They have to get their their city deals and what have you. But once they've got that, they can keep agitating, and I think that's where, where their job will be. They can both agitate to government for place in a way that we haven't really had anyone with real mm-hmm. strength to do for a very long time. And they can also um, be ambassadors for place externally. So I think you're going to see people like Andy Burnham and Andy Streets, Street Streeter?
0: No, Streets, yeah.
1: Sorry, I'm, I started... Because I I've been in Ilford North a lot with West Street-ing. So uh. it's just confusing the hell out of me right now. No. Um, but so I think we're going to see them travelling the world, selling their individual places, and possibly even um working together to be a voice for England, at least, when it comes to international deals that actually might be quite different from the voice the government might put out. Mm. And I think you'll... I mean, you can see that with the way Sadiq Khan has been um really probably the strongest voice um in Labour, um talking about single market access, talking about the the rights of, of European citizens.
0: And also you know, I can't help but noticing Steve is very popular. Like I mean, in fact probably like if anything, people are undercritical of some of his some of his policies that are perhaps less good. But he himself is personally very popular when he wasn't before he held that job. So I think it's like people do kind of like the idea of having a representative of their place, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Sadiq's done the visuals of being mayor spot on. Mm. Um, you know, he's gone out to the right places. The The campaign was pretty dirty and nasty. And, mm. and I think that Which actually... Which actually, I think, ended
0: up working in his exactly. favour. Because it, I, I knew a lot of liberal in the London Tories who were like so appalled by the fact that Zach Goldsmith was running a, you know... It was basically a racist campaign. Yeah. Let's not lie to ourselves yeah. here. So I, I know, you know, very firm Tories who voted for Sadiq Khan on principle yeah. because they didn't want their London to be represented by somebody who would who would do that.
1: I and, and I think yeah I think it both won in votes, but also I think it's won in loyalty because people are like no he's our guy. Mm. You don't talk about our guy like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think and then having been a really good, you know, he was good at London Bridge. He was good at Grenfell. You know, he stood up. He went out. He talked to people. Um so and he's been you know he's good at Finsbury Park it's a bit horrible how many you have to remember Yeah Um you know uh, he's and he's been Very good at representing all the communities of London, and I think that's one of the things that was um, thrown at him during the campaign. Um, You know, with lots of, well, you're a Muslim, so you won't be able to represent Sikhs or Hindus or Jews, or and he's actually been really good at kind of bringing everyone together.
0: Yeah, no, I think his first official appointment, sorry, official engagement rather, as mayor was the day after the Sunday after the election. In fact, he went to a a Holocaust memorial Mm -hmm. service at 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 a synagogue in North London. I think. Um, and that felt like just—I mean, obviously there's a certain amount of naked politics there, but you know those optics are important, yeah, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, and, and yeah, you know, that's that's London. That's why I love living here.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, you know, it's important to us that our mayor does those things.
0: So to sum up, metro mayors are not going to magically bring back the golden age of local government, but they might make it easier to start making the case for it. Is that is the, that yeah, where we are?
1: The metro mayors are a tool. They are are starting to flex the muscles of local government. And the more you do that, the stronger you get. It's a terrible metaphor, but there you go. Well,
0: give us more mayors, then.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So for
0: this week's audience participation section which firstly emma has very kindly agreed to stay on and read some tweets with me but for this this week i, I got the readers of the city metric t- twitter feed to answer the question what's your favorite stupid local authority name slash boundary slash job title because you know you, you may notice i'm being pretty open-ended there in the hope of getting some good responses so what have we got uh
1: i've got a lovely one from jim watterson which uh says that weird bit of south-west London, which I'm going to dub the Chessington Finger. I don't really want to think too carefully about what a Chessington Finger might be.
0: But but like, actually, that really annoys me as well, because like there is basically the problem is Epsom and Yule didn't want to be in Greater London, and because they were quite rich, and there was a Tory government that brought in these plans, they went, yeah, sure, fine, you can stay in Surrey.
1: Well, the but- blurry bits at the edge of London are always a bit confusing. I mean, I used to work for the Kent Messenger... And as far as the Kit Message was concerned Bromley is absolutely not in Kent. As far as Bromley's concerned, it's absolutely in Kent. <laughs> yeah. And you know, people are very, very passionate about this.
0: I mean, I, I grew up in the Essex bit, of, and it's the same. Like, Romford is, is the most Essex place in mm. the universe. It's like when people make jokes about Essex, they kind of mean the bits that look like Romford. Mm. But it's not technically in Essex and hasn't been for the last 50 years. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. well, I, I mean, I live on that edge of London. In fact, I um, I knew we were going to... Uh, the Remain campaign was going to lose the, um, the election that morning because I went leafleting at Walthamstow Central Station. And the interesting thing about Walthamstow Central Station is it has an overland and an underground. Everyone who walked to the station from Walthamstow was like, yeah, we're with you, we're totally voting your way. Because uh, I was leafleting for Remain, obviously. Everyone getting off the train from Chingford would not look me in the eye. Yeah. And it was, that was, this, this, it was so stark that I thought, oh, OK.
0: Yeah, no, Chingford's the the Tory bit, isn't it? Yeah. It's Ian Duncan Smith's seat, so you can tell.
1: Although uh, massively not, reduced majority yeah, maybe this time not, around. Maybe not for because long, it yeah. is changing, and and London, as London does, is spreading right out up there. So places like Highams Park are getting a lot more. Yeah, well, I mean, over. what's
0: happening is people are being priced out basically, yeah. so they're moving to sort of further flung suburbs, yeah. and that's changing the the mix. Um, So other tweets. Political Animal, who works at, I believe, Ealing Council, points out that the seat of Surrey County Council is not in Surrey because it's in Kingston-upon-Thames, which is a London borough. Also Steve Chambers points out that rural North Ockenden is part of London, but urbanised South Ockenden is not.
1: Uh, We've got an international one here uh, from John Mannion, who says that there's two Kansas cities bordered by state lines and the bigger one isn't in Kansas. Oh, yeah, that's
0: Kansas City, Missouri, which which is like... okay yeah is this
1: where you did you go to this as part of your really dull tour of america it wasn't
0: really dull it was great
1: (laughs) you weren't really selling it you and your guest were sort of competing to not sell these bits of america
0: yeah i mean like i have spent more time in ohio than I, i care to remember but but no i mean this happens a lot in u.s cities where they do grow up and cross state lines so like new york the sort of urbanized area of new york extends into four different states really there's large chunks in New Jersey, in Connecticut, but also, like, some of the further-flung suburbs are in Pennsylvania as well. So, yeah, that's annoying.
1: Yes. And I've got one here which I can absolutely um, agree with, because I used to live roughly the same place. Um, tally, I underscore want underscore yellow. Mm. It says, the Lambeth-Southwark boundary that is my street, meaning I get woken up twice per week for, by bin trucks. Which, oh, I feel that so much.
0: <laughs> I thought that was a bit of a... Like, that's, that's not really a sort of common issue, is it?
1: Um, when you live in London and move around a lot, one of the most annoying things about that, and this is a very London-centric point, and I apologise for everybody no. listening who's not in London, is that your recycling, your rubbish collection, changes every time you accidentally cross the borough boundary. And that is, I mean, this is one of the one of the reasons that I'm in favour of sort of more sort of central London organisation. And that doesn't mean I want to take powers away from the, the boroughs, but I do think they could coordinate these things a little better.
0: I mean, I, I have limited sympathy because I have to take my own recycling out to the bins, so you know. Um. Have a word with Islington, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> now, David Mason uh, says, I assume this is, uh, he's talking about you know, the silliest job title, he says, in Sheffield, we once had a racist incidents coordinator.
1: <laughs> I kind of see what they were getting yeah. at. <laughs> but yes, no, 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 only in Sheffield.
0: There's the Surprisingly widespread hate for... Um, the, the district of Bath and North East mm. Somerset, which is universally known as Baines.
1: Baines, yes. Baines just always makes me think of Barnes. Which um, ba- um, Bath and North East Somerset. Bath is absolutely beautiful, one of the most beautiful places in the country. Barnes is not.
0: No, Barnes is all right. It's, awesome. it's all
1: right, but it's no. So, it's, it's no Bath. There's
0: also a surprising number of people who are angry about the fact that Newmarket is in Suffolk when it should clearly be in Cambridgeshire. So that's that's a thing our readers feel strongly about, apparently.
1: Okay, your readers have even more esoteric interest than I do.
0: I like. I also like going back to the Metro Mayor thing. John Stone from uh, the Independent says that the mayor of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough surely symbolises everything wrong with local government <laughs> in England.
1: <laughs> the mayor of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough is everything that's wrong with the way that the government negotiated the Metro Mayor deals.
0: The problem is, it is a weird one because, like, if there if there had been more kind of county level ones that came through, it wouldn't look quite so yeah. strange. But also it's because Peterborough is not really in Cambridgeshire. It never has been. It was in Northamptonshire once upon a time.
1: And it's also because David Cameron's absolutely, completely determined not to give Cambridgeshire a deal because he had massively fallen out with them. Really? I yeah. Think. I mean, that's that's my understanding. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. And they kept slagging yeah. him off.
0: Yeah, no, there does seem to be... Um, there, there was certainly a thing where uh, the raw political interest came into it, so that like, yeah. the reason, as I understand it, that... There was no Yorkshire. Uh, there was no, none of these metro are in, in, in Yorkshire proper. Well, the Tees Valley kind of crosses into North York. but there's no Leeds deal. Mm-hmm. Say was because rural Yorkshire Tories didn't want uh, a, a Labour mayor on their doorstep, and so are agitating for a Yorkshire-wide deal yeah. that they could at least possibly win. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: So, so and probably would have
1: done. Nine weeks ago. Yeah, or whenever, no, they, probably, they almost they go... certainly would have done this. Um, like... Yeah, I mean, how, how things have they've changed. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Kay is making me laugh because I think he's trolling you by simply saying uh, things like Ben Houchen, Mayor of Tees Valley. Uh, Zach I... Goldsmith, MP for Richmond Park. I
0: do like the fact that, like, <laughs> simply among listeners of this podcast, I don't think anyone else in the world is aware of it, but among listeners of this podcast, we've accidentally made the Tees Valley Mayoral election a meme. So, you know, that's something.
1: Only on CityMetric, John, yeah. only on CityMetric, but that's where it counts.
0: I'm still depressed about the Richmond Park result.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, if I were a sensible Tory, I'd be depressed about the Richmond Park result because you're just rewarding appalling behaviour. I mean, just appalling internal party behaviour, never mind yeah. all the other stuff.
0: Yeah, I said I don't understand why the Tory party are not more angry with him for like quitting and calling a pointless by-election, but, you know.
1: Just... I suspect he brings very good jam to the local fundraisers. <sighs>